I think that several things would be very different in Germany than happened in the United States. Of course, we have a different set of laws. We certainly have a different set of procedures. Jens, even though he was 18 at the time, the crime which he did not commit, he was sentenced to two life sentences. That is unheard of, as I understand it, in Germany. And many Germans have asked, how can that be possible? Hello and welcome to episode 8 of our podcast, The Jen Soaring Case, A New Verdict. Ralph, in our society, the formal procedure for resolving legal disputes and punishing crimes is much more than a bureaucratic act. It is a symbol of justice, of the protection of individual rights, and also of the pursuit of truth in the midst of complexity and conflict. But first, welcome and thanks for joining me again today. Hello, Daniela. Since we're looking at the Yen Soaring case, which also includes the legal proceedings and the trial against him, it would of course be great if you could also explain the procedural differences between the US and Germany in this episode. In the course of the other episodes, we have already talked about some key points that relate not only to the trial, but also to other issues surrounding the case. We have talked about circumstances and about the fact that there was a time gap between the trials of Jens Soaring and Elizabeth Haysom. We also talked about Elizabeth's cooperation with the prosecutor. And such a trial, after all, embodies our collective belief that justice should not be achieved hastily, but after careful examination and deliberation. First of all, it must be emphasized that different cultures also entail and justify different legal systems. It is quite normal that things have developed differently in the USA over the last 200 years than in Germany. We Germans still had the huge problem that, especially after the Third Reich, after World War II, we had just put behind us a regime of injustice in which there was no justice at all in criminal proceedings. With the creation of the Basic Law in 1949, we created the legal framework that makes up our current formal code of criminal procedure. And that is why we had the best preconditions to learn from the mistakes that happen all over the world and to build the best possible safeguards against wrongful convictions and miscarriages of justice into our criminal proceedings. It's a very formalized process. And I think that's also the difference to the U.S., where certain procedures have simply been established over the centuries against the backdrop of a different history and less need for corrective action. People have become accustomed to that system, and now it's simply the way it is. A fundamental difference is that in Germany, we have a presumption of innocence and must therefore investigate all angles and alternatives, including those that might exonerate the accused, whereas in the U.S., criminal trials focus on the adversarial interaction between the prosecution and the defense. At the end of this process, it is not a collective body of judges that arrives at a verdict, but an independent jury made up of 12 persons. Keeping in mind what we have heard and learned so far, legal proceedings in the U.S. are also about avoiding wrongful convictions and reaching a fair and just verdict, in other words, of working diligently and adopting a structured approach. We are talking about the Yen Soaring case, 
and how it was handled in court. He was also a German, a foreigner, on trial in the United States. Yes, but we can only speculate to what extent that was a decisive factor in his conviction. I think the local circumstances and parameters were a decisive factor. A small town with low population figures. What was special about the trial was the brutality, the high-profile nature of the case, and the urgency to identify the perpetrator. In this combination, the confession is always of particular importance because that was the foundation upon which the relatively speedy conclusion of the trial rested. And I think that this was simply an unfavorable constellation. However, I'm not implying that the individuals involved would have actually behaved differently toward an American than toward a German defendant. Gail Marshall, who we heard in the snippet at the beginning of this episode, has for decades faulted the performance of Jens's attorney, Richard Neaton. Her critique is justified. In Germany, we also have a defense attorney, we have a prosecuting attorney's office, and we have the court but all of them are obliged to be objective and unbiased. If this had also been the case in this trial, then the prosecutor, because of his obligation to be objective, would have had to make findings in favor of Jens, something the defense attorney failed to do. It would have been his duty to introduce evidence and request witness testimony. And that didn't happen. That is precisely the problem with the adversarial system as practiced in the United States. In a courtroom, not only laws are being interpreted, but also our ideas of right and wrong, guilt and innocence. In 1987 and 1990, Jens' trial, none of this really was known to me. However, now when I look back, uh, for example, Chuck Reed never got to sit in the courtroom and watch the trial because he was on the witness list. As a witness, you're not allowed to do that. Chuck was kept outside in waiting, meaning outside of the courtroom, thinking that he was going to be called at any day, any time. He was never called. And I feel like that was because what Chuck Reed had to say and what he would testify to did not fit the narrative of what the investigators and the prosecution had put together. And to this day, that still bothers me that he sat there, and I, you know, again, I did not know that. He sat outside of that courtroom for almost two weeks waiting to be called and not knowing that he wasn't going to be called. So I think if you, if you take that information now and you look at it, you look back, it's a form of corruption. What does that say about values and principles when so many omissions occur, as in the trial against Jens Suring? Well, I think U.S. criminal law is also a fault-based law. However, because of what we have said, it is questionable whether the structure of the criminal trial is actually capable of always properly assessing the culpability of the offender. The focus should always on the human being and human dignity. When you deprive people of their liberty, 
you have to be very careful that the duration of the sentence corresponds to the degree of culpability of the offender. In other words, the punishment must fit the crime. Transparency is another key aspect of a trial. In open societies, trials are generally open to the public so that citizens can observe the legal proceedings and take a critical look at the legal system. It's some sort of quality control by the public to ensure a fair and unbiased trial. As far as publicity in the Soaring case is concerned, transparency was taken a bit too literally during the trial. There was a huge media hype, with cameras broadcasting live from the courtroom, and the whole of Bedford was full of news vans. There was a show. It was, uh, it was filled with chaos, but Bedford had never seen satellite trucks. They, they lined Main Street, they lined side streets. There was nowhere to park. And my house was only 12 miles from the courthouse, but I would leave every morning around 6 a.m., stand in line so I could get a seat to make sure that I could get in for the day. The videos will show you people were lined up way out the door, and some didn't get seats. Yes, transparency is a very important principle. The point is that the people must be able to understand verdicts handed down in the name of the people through their own perceptions and observations. That is what transparency is all about. On the one hand, transparency is supported by the trial observers who are directly on site, and on the other hand, by the media. In Germany, however, there is always the balancing act between the personal rights of a defendant, still presumed innocent, and the public interest as to the permissible extent of media coverage and dissemination of information. Taking pictures is okay, but as soon as those involved in the trial enter the courtroom, press photographers and TV camera crews must leave. There are no image recordings of trials in Germany, nor are there any live broadcasts. But that doesn't mean that it's wrong if things are viewed and handled differently in America. In Germany, however, one would weigh whose interests should be considered paramount, especially when it comes to establishing the truth. I've already said that a witness is the worst evidence. He must remember facts that are sometimes complex, sometimes unpleasant, sometimes from long ago. Maybe this is the first time he testifies in court. And of course, he acts completely differently when various cameras are pointed at him, knowing that the whole world may be watching him. Those are important aspects to be considered, which is why, in Germany, the situation is clear-cut. No TV broadcasts from the courtroom. In the U.S., society has a different view, but that's just how things are. I think that this exaggerated media hype has led to changes since the 1990s. Apparently, they don't show everything as freely and abundantly today as they did back then. That may well be true. In any case, those are the key parameters you always have to consider. To ensure a fair trial and transparency at the same time, it's best if courts only allow trial observers to take written notes while at the same time banning TV and audio broadcasts from being transmitted into millions of homes all over the country. In one of our first episodes, we discussed how the events and developments leading up to the trial deserve criticism. In 1995, Elizabeth Haysom uh, came up for parole, and one of the people who 
testified at the at her parole hearing was the prosecutor in the case, uh, Jim Updike. He didn't take a position one way or the other on whether she should be paroled. Uh, however, he did uh, help her out. He said, she's a fascinating person to talk to, very charming. Knowing her intellectual ability, you have to wonder what happened, why her parents are dead. And he said further, she was a great assistance to me. They deserve criticism insofar as the entire investigation, especially the handling of the confessions, but also what happened afterward was a rush job. We can safely assume that no effort was being made to verify the truthfulness of the confession before the indictment was drawn up. It was accepted at face value and viewed as a success. They traveled to London empty-handed and returned home with a confession. And then they drew up the indictment because they wanted to capitalize on that success. This is all highly questionable because it significantly narrowed the focus of the investigation. These aspects deserve to be criticized, and I think they could have been handled differently. I'm convinced that it wasn't like that in every comparable case in the U.S. It was only in this particular case that they handled things that way, and I'd like to stress again that it was certainly more due to the lack of professionalism and routine of an investigator who was still very young at the time than to the American legal system as a whole. We have already talked about some points, about witnesses, about the state witness, about the role of the judge, about the media presence. The role of the lawyer is, of course, essential. The failures of Jens's defense attorney, who did not follow up on the tire expert who commented on the sock print. The cross-examination techniques that he did not master. That he didn't insist on having Christine Kim subpoenaed and also having Chuck Reed called to the stand. And maybe it would be good to talk about the trial methods and strict regulations in Virginia as well. It's a very formalized process. That is, it tends to be more formal than substantive. And that is certainly a weak point. It must always be about what results I can achieve with what means, and not so much about formality, for example. What exact wording do I have to use when filing a motion? In Germany, for example, defense counsel has the right to file a formal request to introduce evidence, but the judge can also say, Mr. or Madam Defense Counsel, you don't need to file a formal request. The chamber does that on its own initiative, and that also simplifies things. I think that in the U.S., things are a bit stricter and more formal, and if mistakes are made, then it's game over. It should be obvious to our listeners by now that there are major differences between the legal systems of the United States and Germany why don't you tell us something about the composition of the court in both countries? In Germany, we have different levels. In the case of criminal offenses where the expected sentence does not exceed four years imprisonment, the district courts decide, and as a rule, a professional judge acts as a criminal court judge without the assistance of lay magistrates who are selected from the general population on a voluntary basis. Aside from that, there also are lay magistrate courts at the district court level, for example, 
in cases involving rape, minor robberies, and other things. Offenses where imprisonment exceeds four years are handled by regional courts. There, you generally have a presiding judge, two associate judges, and two lay magistrates. At least that's the case in criminal courts which deal with murder or manslaughter. Besides the judges, there is a prosecutor, one or more defense attorneys, expert witnesses, interpreters, and so forth. In criminal trials in the U.S., there is a judge who has essentially a moderating function. One the one side, you have the defendant and their counsel, on the other the prosecutor. The final verdict is not the responsibility of the judge, but of a jury of 12 persons drawn from all walks of life, from different occupations, different genders, and different ethnic backgrounds. This is supposed to reflect the diversity of society. These jurors must evaluate the case on the basis of their natural abilities. Those are, in essence, the differences between the two countries. You mean he got special treatment by the legal system here in Virginia, which resulted in his being released on parole? I, I would say the opposite. It was an uphill battle. We had to work very hard, and we had a lot of people uh, who support Jens, the former sheriff of Albemarle County, uh, who is a conservative Republican. He believes firmly that Jens is innocent, um, and he was working on the case. John Grisham, Steve Rosenfield, myself, Gail Marshall. I mean, there are a lot of people who believe in Jens's innocence and worked hard to at least get him out of prison, which we were fortunately able to do. Um, but it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. We had to do a lot of work. I think it is also important to address another aspect in this episode, namely the highly politicized nature of the position of the judge, not only in the Yen Suring trial, but in U.S. trials in general. I'm talking about the fact that the judge, because he holds an elective office, is also subject to career considerations. Well, in Virginia, judges are appointed, not elected. However, this is done by a member of the state legislature who in turn gets elected. So yes, you might say that the legal process does have political overtones and ramifications. The judge needs to get confirmed every six years, and his confirmation depends on whether the elected representative is satisfied with and approves of the judge's work. In this context, a judge might think very carefully maybe only on a subconscious level, about what is expected of him to remain in office. And how would a German judge, who is appointed for life and therefore objective and independent and only subject to his own conscience and conviction, decide in a comparable case? That's an important point to consider in the context of the position of the judge in Virginia. When it comes to his job security, he depends on the favorable attitude of others because he is not appointed for life. As far as the career factor is considered, the Sowering case sure turned out to be a winning proposition for Mr. Updike. Today, he is a judge and is therefore not allowed to make a statement in this podcast. Yes, and we have to keep in mind that the prosecutor is also elected by the people, 
which means he is dependent on his constituency because it is natural that the local citizenry expects results. And if the prosecutor doesn't deliver, he must worry about not remaining in office with all the social and personal disadvantages that entails. And therefore, you can't really blame him for acting and thinking that way. Plus, the adversarial system makes it easier for him to act that way. And Klaus at that time, the father, had been assigned to the consulate in Detroit. And the people in the embassy knew this particular lawyer and said, here's a name. But that man was not a criminal lawyer, criminal defense. He was mostly civil. And he knew nothing about the particular rules and procedures that the Virginia courts are very strict about uh, enforcing. And so he made many errors because of his lack of knowledge um, of the um, particular rules. Uh, he had evidence to try to get a new trial in light of this magazine article that I mentioned. But he filed, he filed the motion to set aside after the verdict came in, because they didn't know about it until the trial had already started. After the verdict came in, and <clears throat> the 21-day rule, he filed it within 21 days. But that's not what the rule means. It, the 21-day rule in Virginia means the judge loses all jurisdiction over the case, can't do anything, even if he wanted to. And so that whole issue had been defaulted by the failure of the, of the um, the defense counsel. How important would be a change for the legal system in Virginia? Well, it should be a high priority, as you might imagine. Most until recently, and there were some reforms in the last two years, prisoners couldn't vote. So if you were seeking office, you would not play to the um, desires and needs of a population that can't vote. In addition, um, there's an overrepresentation of low income and people of color. And that's not a group that the politicians are out to raise money from or to um, gain the vote to any great extent. So we have to realize one thing is to realize the cost we are spending for incarceration and with no good results. We need to educate people to understand that it's not just this prisoner who needs help. The whole family is affected. Fathers are not able to see their sons. Mothers are not able to see their children. And the family is disunited in a way that is not going to lead to a brighter future. So it's a matter of trying to understand that the prison system is not just an afterthought. It should be up there with education and medical care if we want a good, prosperous society. Ralph, now that I've said something about the 21-day rule, I would like to ask you a personal question to wrap things up. Is that okay? Sure, go ahead. Would you have wanted to act as judge in the Yen Soaring trial? Now that's really a difficult question. But why not? 
I think that someone who exercises the office of a judge must be able to deal with every trial situation and not have any specific inhibitions. Of course, there are always trials where you say, why does this have to end up with me again? But basically, and this is a good thing in our system, professional judges cannot determine in advance who will work on which case. And therefore, all trials must be conducted with the same passion, intensity, and objectivity. And this would, of course, also include the Jens Suring case. Thank you very much. This was the eighth episode of our podcast series, The Case Against Jens Suring, A New Verdict. We discussed the role of the defense attorney in trials and how the public perception of the trial also has a lasting impact on Jens Soaring's reputation. In the next episode, Judge Ralph Giesruber goes into interrogation with Jens Soaring. Among other things, he asks him the questions and voices the accusations against Soaring that are stirring public opinion. Subscribe to the podcast and never miss a thing. Thanks for listening. You're Daniela Hillers.